Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. I think the All Blacks say it best. They, they arm their players with all the necessary skills and knowledge and then take a massive step backwards. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas and I'm a UEFA A-licensed football coach, coach developer and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right guys, welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas and today I'm joined by a very special guest and a good friend of mine, Lee Waddington. Lee. How are you this morning, mate? I'm very well, thank you. Um, thanks for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Brilliant. Well, thanks for being with me, Lee. Uh, just, you know, just for those that maybe aren't too familiar with who you are, Lee, and what you do, uh, would you mind just giving us a brief rundown and then we'll talk about your journey a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, as, as you have just said, I'm, I'm, I'm Lee Waddington. I'm a UEFA Advanced Youth Award coach. I've also quite recently, two years ago, uh, graduated in, sport, in a uh, master's degree in sports psychology. Um, I'm 51 years of age now, so I've had about 30 years near enough in the coaching game uh, where I've been really fortunate during that period of time to work for some fantastic clubs and some amazing people that we may touch on later on. Um, But yeah, currently I'm the founder and co-owner of an organisation called First Team Football Group which is a global enterprise trying to implement our player learning centre model into different countries overseas in territories such as the USA, Canada, UAE, Australia, South Africa and China in the main. And you know, just Lee, obviously that's, you know, that's where you're at right now. You talk there about you know, having over 30 years experience or near enough 30 years. And you know, I just want to take you right back to the start of that journey. Um, so <laughs> okay. Where did that journey start? What, 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 I guess, caught your eye in terms of being in, within the coaching world? Yeah, I spoke to you. I'm like uh, a high percentage of, of coaches out there is that I played played the game from a very young age. I still still remember the first ever game I played as a young six-year-old and just totally fell in love with playing. Um, I was lucky enough to get an apprenticeship at Bolton Wanderers. Uh, didn't quite work out. Um, I moved on to Stockport County where I did... A full season as a pro on a non-contract basis, but uh, unfortunately got a quite serious back injury, which ended my career early. So really didn't didn't have a clue what I was going to do next. And fortunately, through a contact, I landed a scouting role for Nottingham Forest, who were in the Premier League at the time and started just going out on the side of pitches, watching young players uh, highlighting players and taking players into the club. And I did that for about six years un- under, I would say, the best academy management team that, that I've ever known, or certainly one that one of the best anyway. Um, and it was during it was during a game where I was watching a game for Forest uh, over in Salford in Manchester, uh, where my old boss from my time at Bolton Wanderers um, 
Walter Joyce basically had just taken the head of scouting job for Manchester United and basically enticed me over. And but really not not to scout, but to start coaching. Unfortunately, and very luckily for me, I'd you know I'd done up to my A license whilst I was at Forest. So I was tasked with setting up with him the model and the blueprint for development centres, which at that time didn't didn't exist anywhere in the UK. Um, and we set we set the first one up, and I believe it's still going today, about twenty five years on. So I did five years at United, working in the development centre side of things, uh, then got approached by Blackburn Rovers, who had the Jack Walker money, were in the Premier League, doing very well. And they asked me if I'd like to replicate what I was doing at United, but on a larger scale. So I took that opportunity and worked very successfully for Rovers for about five five years. Did a little bit of the same for Man City. I'm a Man City fan, uh, but I only did about 18 months at City before I went into Burnley on a full-time basis where I did uh, a whole plethora of different roles there from, you know, coach at the beginning into the head of foundation, uh, head of scouting and recruitment, head of coaching. And that's really, you know... <laughs> I suppose towards the end of my time at Burnley, where I sort of found a new pathway, because for the last sort of eighteen more eighteen months of my time at Burnley, I'd started really working with coaches and coming off the field in terms of not really developing players, but looking at to develop coaches. So I suppose you know when I look back at my career, you know to date and where I am currently. You know, so many different clubs, so many different amazing people that have worked alongside. You know, I've just really sort of taken all that information and observations and things that I've seen and heard and really just tried to wrap it around my own guiding principles. And that's what we try to do with first team football. Mm. And you talked there about, you know, some of those clubs that you've been at. You know, I'm just curious, you know, over the time, you know, I'm sure you've had loads of uh, great coaches, not even just coaches, people just you come across and influences throughout that journey what are some of the biggest things that have uh, you know have you know from being through those clubs and if you can provide some examples of that that'll be great around some you know instances that maybe helped shaped your way of working your way of thinking and have really had an impact on the way you work now yeah i mean it's funny when i do do look back on my career today i've, I've never really had anyone take me directly under their wing as as a mentor. Um, I'm more of a listener and an observer. Um, and I would imagine as I sort of like maybe mentioned some of these people that I've worked alongside and with, you know, some of these people, if, you know, maybe if they listen to the, this podcast, would be really surprised to know how much they actually have influenced me. You know, so I think if I look at a timeline, Yaz, and go back to, you know, my time at Forest, you know, they had an academy manager there called Paul Hart, who was actually born in the same town as me in Stockport. So him and I just, you know, just touched to each other from day one. But what an unbelievable, you know, brilliant player developer. And I suppose from him, it was just watching him and listening and, you know, just the way he dealt with players, you know, and sometimes he was really firm and sometimes, you know, we did take that softer approach. And, you know, I suppose it was just watching him, you know, on the pitch, but also off it that, that started me off really with this this way of just listening and, and observing people and just taking the best bits from them. Because underneath him was a, was a 
he, I don't I don't think he was a coach per se at the time. He was more of an operations director called Nick Marshall, who's currently at Liverpool. He's a number two there with Alex Inglethorpe. But I was just always amazed with Nick, how assured he was for someone so young. He was just absolutely brilliant at what at what he did, just the way he organised things off the pitch. And then obviously how he's, you know, taken that forwards under the guidance of like Paul Hart. And now he's a pro-licensed coach and, you know, one of the best coaches in the country. But I mean, just as a side note there, Yas, you know, going back to what I was saying about, you know, the academy management team at Forest at the time, it was just a dream team, really. You had, you had Paul Hart, you had Nick, and then you had another guy called Steve Wigley, who went on to manage Southampton, you know, ex-player for Forest, um, you know, pro-licensed coach. I think he coached England under-21s. You know, you see those three together. I just don't, I don't think Forest realised what, what they had at the time. Uh, but they had an unbelievable team. And, you know, and you look back in time and the players that came through their system, uh, you know, it was just no, no surprise. So I suppose right at the beginning of my career, it was more, you know, it was Paul Hart and Nick Marshall on, the, on and off the pitch. And then, you know, going forward a little bit, you know, my time at Manchester United and, you know, even up to recent times, you know, you go in there and there's a guy, you know, it's a foundation phase lead coach, a guy called Eamon Mulvey. He's just an absolute gentleman of the game. He's just pure class, you know. Um, and for me, he should be, you know, in my opinion, it should be the academy manager there at United or somewhere else at the highest level. Um, and I suppose just taking things from Eamon is just how to deal with people, you know, in the right way. You know, how to be polite, how to be courteous and professional, you know, especially when he's got the pressure of working at the world's biggest club, you know, and he's, he's in charge of developing, you know, really players, kids at the most, you know, important age group, you know, from that pre-academy age at six, sevens up to like nearly 12. You know, if he gets that wrong, he's passing on the wrong materials. But we all know that he's passing on exactly the right materials because United still produce more first team players on a regular basis, pretty much than anybody else in the world. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that work goes down to Eamon and his team. Mm. And, you know, just just on that, you talk about the, some of the individuals that you work with, you know, like Nick Marsh has obviously gone over to Liverpool. You've got Steve Wigley, who's current, you know, obviously went on to Southampton. And I think previously he was doing, he was assistant manager to Stuart Pearce at Forest as well, wasn't he? Um, he's over at Fulham now. Um, yes, he is. Yeah. So what were some of the things that you picked up from them? Because those are probably people, you know, people that uh, might have a bit more... Uh, if, if, if to see where they've gone with their journeys a little bit, they probably had some real key messages that they they picked up. And was there anything that you picked up of those two in particular? And then beyond that, you know, moving from Man United, uh, from Forest to Man United, what was that yeah. like for you? You know, going from initially a scouting role into a coaching role, was that something that you kind of had your eyes set on? And what was you know, was there a particular conversation that took place? Be fortunate, well, actually, I'm really going to have a go at this coaching thing. And you know, was it something that was you know from was it Warren Joyce? Was it? No, I never. I mean, it's funny. I actually played with Warren um, when I was at Bolton, uh, so I knew a lot of uh, you know Warren. Yeah. Uh, all my work that I did for United was out um, in doing the development centre work. So that's where I started, really. So coming from scouting, where I was observing players and looking for key things, you know, that Forrest certainly were looking for in players. To going into a you know the framework of coaching. 
I found that the scouting, you know, for five, six years and doing my coaching badges at the time really helped me. You know, that observation again and listening to players, listening to other coaches and scouts, I just found really, really helpful. Um, I suppose I suppose going back to your question, Yaz, it's not so much, you know, was there one or two things that I just took? I think if I just talked about, you know, Steve Wiggs or, you know, Artie or Nick Marshall, you know, if I just talked about one or two things for them, I think I'd be doing them all a disservice mm. because for me, they just had together, they had the complete package of, you know, working with players is not just about what you're doing with them technically, tactically, physically out on the field. You know, for me, it's more about how you're treating that player as a human being, certainly as you go through the different age phases, you know, and treating them, you know, with, with respect, you know, and at times, you know, yes, you know, there's got to be discipline, but it can't always be disciplined. So, uh, you know, I suppose at Forest, you know, you had Artie, you had a bit of that discipline, but could also, you know, engage players in humour, you know, and have a laugh with them. Steve Wigley came in at a more softer approach and Nick Marshall was pretty much like me, I suppose, because Nick's, Nick's a fair bit younger than me. Nick was there just soaking all this experience up as he was going through all his coaching badges. And I think, you know, if you interviewed him, which would be an amazing interview because he's, you know, he's got, you know, a real insight into the game. I think, I think hopefully he'd say the same thing. It wasn't just one or two things that they did. You know, it's a whole, it's a whole gambit of, different aspects, you know, to, you know, to Paul Hart, could he put teams together tactically? Of course he can. You know, as an ex-player, you know, as a pro-licensed coach, of course he can. But how he dealt with individual players, I think for me, he understood their character individually. And he, you know, sometimes had to rule certain players with a bit more of an iron rod, but other players, he sort of nursed them and, you know, sort of took a more softer approach with them. Um and, you know, I suppose it was an overall picture for me because when I was at Forest, I was wanting to maybe be a coach in the future, but I was there in a role as a scout. I was bringing players in and really listening to what they were saying about the players that I was bringing in. And I always remember Artie saying to me, Lee, remember one thing with scouting. It's not what you bring in, it's what you keep away. And that's always stuck with me. And that's going back nearly 30 years. Mm. So, do you have an example of you know what you know we don't have that name and names or anything like that, where you thought you know what I really, I really could see where that's coming from? Was there a particular play that sparked that that comment or that conversation, um, or a series of players even? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose for me personally, um, I mean, I'll name the player because he didn't actually go on to be a player. Although when he was a schoolboy, he looked outstanding. He was a guy. He was a you know a player called Steve Webb from Macclesfield over in Cheshire. And it was before, obviously, the EPPP and the travel distance rules. And I just, I remember watching him half a dozen times before I took him in, because one of the things that you had to make sure at Forest, you know, you had to make sure that the player was, you know, was close to what they were looking for. Um, so you didn't get it wrong. And that really sharpened your eye and your ear. Um, so I remember, I remember them, you know, first first game looking at Stephen Webb and sort of, they weren't talking directly to me, but I was within ear, you know, distance of listening to them. And they were just talking about Stephen in the same way that I'd observed him. So I, st I started to 
start to understand, you know, maybe a year, 18 months into my role there, the, the things that things that they were trying to teach me and the things I was listening to and observing, you know, when, when I went to watch training there, I was starting to understand what they were looking for. So really sound te technical skills, you know, being able to, you know, receive and secure the ball under pressure, you know, playing with a real good, you know, high head position, you know, for visual awareness, you know, really clear open shoulders to try and play forwards when sort of possible. Um, you know, the character of the, you know, with the player, you know, did he make him laugh? You know, was he totally committed? Was he hardworking? You know, so when I, when I heard the management team talking about Stephen, you know, I was really pleased within myself to start to understand that I knew what they were looking for and what I was visualising out at the cold face watching games, I was really starting to pick up. Mm. You know, it's, it's kind of... It, it's quite an interesting you know, way to look at it because I think a lot of people don't appreciate how much, you know, when you're looking at, I guess, recruit, recruitment from a, you know, from a, like a club's perspective, it is, it is, you need having to put yourself in the eyes or the shoes of the club in that respect. You might have, you might have your own views on what you think is an effective player, but actually if that doesn't fit with the make of the club, you know, then there's only so, so far that that player will, be, will go or even be given an opportunity to, if that makes sense. Yeah. Kind of just do it, kind of, move things forward a little bit then obviously you've gone from Forest to Man United you know eventually gone into the you know development centres and you, you've got a bit of an idea of what what kind of players you're looking for and what the makeup is at the club how did it progress from there you know going from Man United and eventually you know you ended up at City as well yeah um I suppose the next progression for me was Go, go leave, leaving Manchester United was was a massive decision. But Blackburn Rovers came along and offered me the opportunity not just to you know do development centre coaching, but set up a network. So now it was about finding suitable locations to house a development centre. So taking that blueprint that I had at Manchester United and really ran with it at Blackburn Rovers. So securing. Different venues, locations across the northwest, and then it was looking at coaches, so recruitment of coaches and training of coaches in the Blackburn Rovers way to you know to coaching them DCs, uh, and then attaching scouts to that as well. I suppose I suppose the biggest thing that I always remember with my time at Blackburn, and I didn't I didn't get it at the time. I didn't realise how big the rivalry was between Blackburn Rovers and Burnley Football Club, but I do I do now after working for both clubs. Um, is that I decided in my wisdom to open the first development centre slap bang in the middle of Burnley. So I still I still remember we had the first first groups of young kids, young players coming in, and I think every single dad was wearing a Burnley shirt. And I, I still I still remember that to that day, you know, where I was thinking. Have I actually done the right thing setting this up in Burnley? But actually, you know, we produced some really good players from it. So I suppose, I suppose going back to your question, Jan, Jan, it was obviously it was a natural progression from maybe running one DC for Man United to then being asked to set up a network of DCs across the Northwest and everything that came with that. Um, and, and really, I suppose my, my end of my time at Blackburn came with a big change at the club. Uh, where certain personnel were leaving. Steve Nixon, who was the head of recruitment, left, went to Newcastle, and a few coaches came and went. 
And I'd, I'd always wanted to work for my boyhood club, which was Man City, because I've supported them all my life. So we were tasked with setting up similar, but start to go up the age groups. And this is where really I started to work sort of up into the YDP, setting up, um, I mean, there really were still development centres, but not in the pure sense of doing the youngest age groups. We were we, we were more of a feeder private academy that was feeding players into City's academy at the time. Um, I did that only for a short period of about 18 months before really then I got offered the full-time role at Burnley Football Club. Mm. And then obviously that role in, at Burnley, you know, would you mind just talking a little bit about that role in particular, I guess, and what that was, look, you know, what that looked like on a day-to-day and I guess the, you know, the responsibilities in terms of both player development and coach development. Yeah, I mean, I look back on my six and a half years at the club with nothing but great, great memories, you know, the things that we did, you know, together as a team, as an academy team, um, you know, just the people there, you know, were fantastic. You know, just just to think what the gaffer has done with the club. You know, we see that yesterday when you know they go away to Arsenal and win one nil. You know, just just to be around that when he when he came in and to have the opportunity to you know again just observe and listen to him. But my first role there was was to take charge of the foundation phase. They were a cat, cat three academy at the time, but fairly high spending, you know, for a cat, cat three. I hadn't really been producing players for the club or any other club, really. So we went very aggressively at it to set up development centres, you know, in Liverpool, in Manchester, you know, and then, you know, across, across the northwest of England to try and secure better, younger players that we were going to funnel into the club, which proved to be hugely successful. You know, and I see some of the players now coming through at the club. You know, I think there's about eight of the dozen under 18s that all came through that system that are currently there. They sold a player to Man United a couple of years back for big money, who's playing for England now and absolutely flying. And so, you know, what 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 we did there, you know, in the foundation phase, you know, I suppose was some of the best work in my career, really. You know, and some and some of the people that I worked alongside in there, it'd be a miss, you know, remiss of me not not to mention one of the coaches who worked me all the way through. Fantastic coach, great developer. Uh, he's he's influenced the play, players that are you know are flying at the moment. So Dwight McNeil in the first team at Burnley. Um, you got Callum Styles. Styles is over at Barnsley, you know, and this 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 coach is called Lewis Craig. I think he's at Morecambe at the moment. You know, he and I worked really closely together. I'd say for my my whole time there, certainly when we were working together in the foundation phase. But I suppose he yeah, has my 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 recollection of my time at Burnley is that I was just exposed to so many different things in such a short period of time. The academy manager at the time was Jason Blake, you know. Great organiser, you know, fan, fantastic guy. But he he just opened up so many different opportunities to me that looking back, I was just so, so lucky, really. So foundation phase lead, YDP phase lead, uh, head of recruitment, back to foundation phase lead, you know, did all the work when we're in the Premier League, like taking teams overseas to tournaments, um, you know, touring teams in Germany, in Belgium. And really, I was just, I've been so privileged and so lucky just to, just to be put in those positions uh, and being allowed to really stamp my authority on it. 
and really run with it, I, I suppose has made me the sort of coach and man that I am today. And he put me on the first adv uh, advanced youth award course as well, which is the best course I ever did. And that opened me up to some un unbelievable FA tutors who you'll, you'll know really well. Uh, one of them, unfortunately, isn't there now. He's Martin Diggle. He was my assessor on the uh, advanced youth award, an absolute genius. And uh, Pete Sturgis, another genius, really. Um, and that's, and that, I, I attribute meeting these people and all these experiences to, to Burnley Football Club. Uh, you know, and I can't speak highly enough about them. Definitely. And you, know, you talked there about, you know, that that advanced youth forward. And I just want to, you know, want to, now while we're on that topic, you know, I want to go into the coach education pathway a little bit. And, cool. You know, over the, over the last few years, there's been a massive uh, shift in terms of the qualifications, how they how they're being delivered, and I guess where the focus points are for these qualifications. What are your thoughts on that in in in, in, in the initial instance of overall, um, and beyond that, you know, a, a lot of coaches would maybe go as far as saying it's probably less of an emphasis on the technical aspects of the courses now. Um, what are your views? Yeah, on? I think I think the move away from just looking at the technique and the physicality of a player has been has been a massive stride forwards for the FA and for you know professional coaches up and down this country. Um, I think. I think when I when I started off doing the introductory module to the youth award, and then go all the way through to the advanced youth award, it's some of the best best work I've ever done in terms of learning and the pedagogy of the game, and the seismic changing approach from the FA really, because I'm. I'm a little bit older than you, yeah. So I remember the old school FA. It was a completely different animal than it is today. So I remember doing the sort of B and the A license and being quite fearful of going on those courses. Whereas doing the, uh, certainly doing the youth award and then the advanced youth award, you know, I look forward to going to St. George's and, and being around other lead coaches from different clubs and being around, you know, Diggs and Pete Sturge and, you know, and all the other tutors there who just took a totally different approach to how they were trying to teach the game to professional coaches. And you're quite right. It wasn't an overemphasis, you know, on the technique or the physicality. It was a much more focused look at the psychology and the social aspects of the game, which I believe is the difference maker between a player going on and forging a career in the game or not. Because uh, you will have seen young young players a lot, just, just like I have. You know, you see them at the likes of Spurs or Arsenal, City, Man United, they get to 12, 13, 14 and take out maybe the top one or two players in each age group. The rest are pretty, pretty similar. You know, they're all very strong technically. They know how to take and deal with the ball. You know, whether they're tall or small, they, you know, physically they've been coached, you know, strength and conditioning wise. So what's, what's the thing that takes a player above that line and gets to the 23s and then the first team squad or even into the first team level. You know, I truly believe when I look back at the players I've been blessed to work with, who were forced to create and are playing professionally today at all different types of levels. You know, I think that mindset, that psychology, the social aspect to them as a human being is really what's, what's taken them forwards and has allowed them to forge a successful, you know, career in what, in what is such a tough, tough game. So I was, mm. I was like, I was just in awe of 
what was going on with the FA on the Advanced Youth Award because it was everything that I'd ever wanted to learn and what and what I believed in. So for me, it was just an absolute blessing. And, you know, it was, it was the best, best course of education that I've ever done in my life. And for any coach who's maybe listening to this who potentially is in the fortunate position to be able to go on that course, I would go on that course again if I could because it was, it was such a life-changing course to go on. Mm. You know, just on that, you talked there, obviously, there's a lot more emphasis around the psych and the social aspects and whatnot. Now, I would argue, and I've, you know, I've had this conversation with many, that um, because there is, I guess, more emphasis on those areas, now, it's now a lot of coaches are maybe have less appreciation for the technical aspects. Um, also, you know, in the fact that because they, you know, they, they come with this whole right, we're going for a blended approach. It's almost like, yeah, we don't need to work as much on the technical stuff. But actually, I think that, you know, in my opinion, and observation tells me that a lot of coaches are using that as a, as a, as a reason to almost hide or hide behind um, to get away from actually working on the technical aspects. And in some cases, or in a lot of cases, in my opinion, actually go into the nth degree to understand the technical elements of the game. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't ignore... The technical aspect just like you can't ignore the physical aspects um i think for me yes is getting a balance and it goes it goes from it goes to the core of my guiding principles of how, how i how i believe in my opinion players learn and develop best for the long term and that is a games-based approach without the oval, oval, overly using block practice. I still, I still see um, too much use of block practice in that technical corner. Uh, and, and, and I'm always so just to pause yeah. for a second there. You know, just um, for anyone that is not too familiar with what you mean by block practice, you might just go into a bit of detail. Yeah, of course. Block block practice for those for those maybe who don't who don't know. Just to put it into simple layman's terms, if Yas and I were learning how to pass and receive the football, a block practice could be just Yas and I maybe 10, 15 yards apart as maybe young players at eight nine years of age with a ball between us and simply just passing in a straight line where we get repetition of receiving and then passing the ball that that in its simplest layman's term would be known as block practice where there's no disruption to what Yaz and I would be doing in learning to receive and then pass the football perfect and you obviously just now you are going on to talk about your perceptions of what that should look like in terms of the yeah program. Uh, I was just going on to say I met with the same same argument from coaches all over the world is when I when I explain my approach, I get coaches who, who always come back with, well, I've got a player who really can't, you know, either receive the ball or pass the ball. So they 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 need block practice. Now I'm not saying that you can't do block practice. My my argument is that it's overly used at, at times because coaches Coaches don't have a true true understanding of the pedagogy of how players learn best. And for me, a major factor in this is motivation. So, I mean, maybe we can go on to this a little bit later, Yaz, about the science of what we do and the work that I've done with Dr. Robert Bjork from UCLA in the uh, States. But 
My my counter argument to this is has, has been underpinned for about the last 10, 10 years by uh, an eminent researcher over here. Uh, I met him at Liverpool, John Moores, uh, Dr. Paul Ford. And basically his his argument is, is that if you use block practice in that, say, me and you learning to receive and pass the ball in the way that I just said, the brain can't calibrate that when you try to take it into the random variableness of a, of the actual game. So his argument through his research is, is why do the block practice in the beginning and waste that valuable time when that time can be best utilized within the context of condition themed or scenario type type games where the thing that you're actually looking for, if it's receiving or passing, for example, those things can be set up and teased out but in a more game specific way of doing things, which over the 20 years I've been using different types of games, I've just seen exponential development in kids who came to me at say six and seven, who didn't really have the fundamentals of receiving and passing. But through this process, not only did they learn for the long term how to receive and pass the ball incredibly well, they had actually at the same time learn visual awareness a lot better and you know, I could mm. list a long name of players which I won't do today but a long list of players who came with not necessarily the fundamentals of the basics in place but six months later had a lot more than the fund fundamentals in base you know in place and that's really yeah. you know been been my guiding principle you know ever since and it, and, and it's worked it's worked for me Hundred percent. I think you, it kind of just you know brings me back to an experience of my own. You know, uh, a couple of years back, where uh, you know for me, my philosophy is quite similar. I, you know, I don't I don't believe in the idea of that. You know, and it's not to say that that you know the idea of block practice or that unopposed you know uh, traditionally viewed as unopposed technical practice or technique practices aren't beneficial in any way. However, my my challenge is always is it the best use of time? Yeah, and. Uh, again, it takes you back to an experience a couple of years ago where I was working with a, a group of um, fairly inexperienced, you know, some had never played the game, young players and, you know, that probably had girls about from five to about ten, range of girls, five to ten playing the game. And I said, right, I'm going to I'm gonna just do things completely different from the norm. And I, and I was very, very fixed in terms of, you know, coming into that environment saying that we're, gonna, we're not going to do any block practice at all. Um, so I spent the first probably six months with them, no, some of them had never played the game, and all we did to start off every single session was just one v ones, just one v ones. But what obviously to provide some variety and give a bit of different variation for the players, is what we do is just every few minutes we just change the player they're playing against, um, allow them to practice just literally simple end zone game. You know, me against you, I'm got against your end, yep. you've got to get to my end, and vice versa, we'll stop one another. And uh, for me, the results were you know, amazing because having not really given too much technical information in that context, um, the improvements I saw over that period of six months was immense uh, to the point where some of these players within just, you know, within six months of not playing, they're now not only become more confident, but they become more tactically aware um, on the different ways to kind of approach different situations based on who they're playing against, if that makes I sense. I suppose that's the heart so of my argument back. Against a, uh, a, a fast player or a slower player than them or a big
bigger or a smaller player than them, they're now looking at different ways they can adapt themselves to kind of play against that. Um, but obviously now, because of the, the, the idea of the practice, it was just, yes, it was in some ways game-related because it was, you know, it's a situation that does occur. But the simple progression for that was, right, we're going to go from a 1v1, we're, we're going to move into a 2v2. Um, and literally, that you know, yeah. that was probably a nine-minute session and like, the first hour was literally going from a 1v1 to a 2v2 to a 3v3 and then whatever fun game they wanted to kind of finish with just to kind of um, just tailor the session off. And like I said, the amount of development that took place over that period of time, just because they were just allowed to express themselves, but in a conditioned game, so to speak, or in a game-like format, was immense. And I think... Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It it is to highlight that, again, block practice is not that it's not beneficial. I don't think it can have an impact on 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 the development of the player, but it's probably not best use of time, in my opinion, how to kind of go beyond that you know, it's a conversation I've been having recently with you know with various individuals, both coaches, coach educators alike, and it's the idea of right now. I feel there's in the current well, in the current generation we're in. There's a lot of coaches coming through now who are, in my opinion, not really coaching. They're just more, they're more facilitators. Um, yes, and they they hide behind this idea of you know let the game be the teacher, we're going to put on a game and let them play and all that, all this sort of stuff. But, you know, at some point for me, you still have to be getting in, involved in coaching. Now, it might not look how it might traditionally look or, you know, certainly when I was coming through, it was very much a directive approach and a command style approach for coaches to kind of adopt. And that was kind of the, the go-to thing. Um, at least on the general term, you know, the majority of people probably were going down that path. Now, there is different ways of coaching. So if I go back to that example of, you know, working with the with these group of girls that I was working with, a lot of it was actually I'm just going to question them. What are their perceptions? So, I'm, you know, for me, my philosophy is much more around developing players who become interdependent but have a higher level of self awareness. Um, so within that process, it is really helping the players and working with the players to help them get to a point where they're understanding what they're actually doing. The amount of times you have players and even you know pros at the top level who are just doing things because it's just it's just instinctive, but they maybe not actually fully aware and uh, paying attention and mindful of the process that they're actually following to achieve an outcome. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I suppose I suppose yes. I've seen it. I've seen it a great deal uh, in places like Australia and the US, where. If you throw if if you throw an half decent player a ball in isolation, they look they look the part, but what they can't do because they've not done a body of work in a game situation, they can't replicate that technique they have in isolation. They can't they can't put it into the same level uh, within a game because they've never been taught the actual how to use what they've got in a game. Mm. And that's why, you know, I completely agree with what you say. You know, time is so important. You know, if you think, if you think, if you have, if if you have players twice a week for ninety minutes at a time, you have them for maybe three, four percent of their weekly time scale. Mm. 
So the timing, you know, is a point you just said, it's vitally important. How do you best use that time? You know, and it's making sure that every second in a practice is utilized in the best way and making best use of that time so you can maximize their talent. But I also think, I think it's, it's what coaches do to impact a player away from the pitch, which, which is really vitally important as well, which maybe isn't ever talked about because as coaches, we always think that we impact them the most when we're with them in person, teaching them how to play the game. But certainly with first-team football, I've been allowed that artistic licence to maybe stretch that and look you know, further outside of just the on-field stuff that we do with them as well. But I, can, I completely agree with you, time is a really important issue. Just, you know, just on that you talked there about, you know, moving into that role with first team football and you know, what that looks like. Can you just help the listeners understand a bit about what that role is and how, how that might impact in terms of player development? Yeah, I suppose, you know, last 18 months, two years has been a seismic change for me from coming from a background for 25 years of purely looking how to develop players to now how to develop coaches and it's a, you know, it's a different approach because, you know, for one, you know, for one reason, you know, dealing with adults and not dealing with children. So, you know, that's a massive change for me straight, straight off. But in my, in my current role, certainly COVID's played a huge, huge role um, in what's gone on with first team this year. But straight, straight from the get go, I decided to try and utilize time. And there we go. We're talking about time again and how important it is to try and use that time to do things positive, you know, to try and have an impact on people's lives, to try and support people and to try and help people. So that's, so that's really my, my, my role at first team football, you know, so it's been utilizing a lot of text, a lot of email and heavily on zoom to virtually meet people all around the world, you know, recruiting coaches, you know, to, you know, to see if they're suitable to come and work for first team and take a role in our player learning centre models, you know, in different countries around the world. And then once we've got the teams in place, it, you know, it switched them very heavily into develop, you know, the coach education and development of those uh, staff coaches in the way that we do it at first team. Mm. So coach, coach education, really, I would say, is a good 70, 80% of my role currently. And it will change, hopefully, when, you know, the vaccinations, touch wood, start to work or, you know, COVID starts to dissipate in different countries. My, you know, my role then will see me go to the likes of China and South Africa and India, you know, certainly India and South Africa, countries I've never visited, you know, totally different cultures, different people, you know, they look at football, you know, maybe in a different way. You know, so to go out to those countries and get out on the grass and work with these coaches and watch how they, you know, coach players there will be really interesting for me. And I'm, you know, hugely looking forward to it. Brilliant. And you know, just, you know, over those years, and I'm just curious now, you know, what, is your, what have your roles and your experiences taught you about leading others? I was very fortunate, Yaz, that in my, um, in my master's, uh, for sports psych, um, my final thesis, I chose leadership. So I chose the three R's of social identity theory of leadership. So it's it's always been something that that really interested me. So I've always been I've always been really interested, you know, in 
in leaders. And again, going, going back to my time at the different clubs I worked at under different management teams, how that academy manager or head of coaching, you know, worked with his staff and how he led his staff. So under the three R's of social identity, the three R's are reflect, represent and realize. So I've, I've hugely leaned on them in the way that I try and lead. So reflect is looking at who's in each individual group. You know, what type of character are they? You know, what sort of background are they coming from? You know, small things, you know, certainly when I was over here, you know, working with different teams, you know, finding out, you know, the background to each individual, you know, going down to things like, you know, where were they born? What team do they support? Because as you know, in football circles, that's important, you know, and how that reflects on the group as a whole. And then looking at how we represent that group and how I can lead that group, you know, what, what, what image do we want? You know, what's our guiding principles, you know, and that was different at the different clubs that I worked at. Um, and then looking at the realization of our goals and our dreams really. So together as a team, you know, leading a team is about each individual, each component of a group of a team to make the whole finding out, you know, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And I've always been one of those, you know, leaders, you know, coaches who looked at the positives, whether it's a player, whether it's a coach, and not so much what they can't do, it's what they're really good at and finding that niche for them within our environment so they can really thrive and prosper and and be stimulated and find enjoyment from what they do. And what I found through taking that that role and taking that way of working is that when it's come to looking at the goals and targets that we set out maybe at the start of a season or what we wanted to achieve together. You know, we tended 99% of the time to really hit those targets, you know, and achieve goals, whether it was individual goals as a coach or the overall team targets and goals. Um, we tended to realise our dreams, you know, and the goals that we set out right at the start of the season. And that comes right down to the beginning through the reflection and then the representation and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm using that today, you know, with the coaches and different coaches and different cultures that I'm working in with first team football. Brilliant. You know, I think it is, is it, you know, a real big bit about what you're doing is getting them, again, really being more self-reflective and understanding, you know, for me, what they're doing, but being able to justify and rationalise it and really coming up with a why behind what they're doing. And I think that's yeah. a key part to that. And I think, you know, for any coach listening to this or anyone in general, you know, um, I had recently had some learners I was speaking to, and I was just telling them, you know, if you, you need to be confident in what you're doing, and if if you're not, then you need to be questioning why you're not confident in it. Because um, the chances are, if you're not confident, you're probably not sure about if it's the right thing or not. Yeah, definitely. I think that 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 small little word "why" is is such an important it's such an important word can be used in you know really powerful ways. Mm. Um, but I think I think with me, it's the why why we why we do this is set out for them. So it's not just because Lee Waddington says so. It's more you know using evidence. You know whether it's scientific, whether it's the production of players. You know and science behind certain things that we do. Mm. Try and say to new coaches, look, it's not just about the X and O's on the session plan. 
because you could go to a million coaches to do that. With us here at First Team, we're trying to do a little bit more than just excite you by, here's a session plan. And I think that's gone down really well with the teams that we're setting up overseas at the moment. Definitely. And I think, you know, it, I wish you all the best with that project. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure it will be successful with, with yourself and obviously your, your peers involved. You know, kind of just moving forward and you've talked there a lot about, you know, your own philosophy and um, how it links into the work you're doing now. Just curious now, what, you know, what, what helps you, you know, you know, you're 30 years deep into this coaching game now. Um, what's helped you to keep inspired and, you know, motivate to be your best and, you know, keep progressing and whatnot? And obviously, you know, within that time, you know, more recently, in the last few years, you've, you know, you've then had that continued motivation to go and do your Masters. Yeah, I suppose... I suppose it's always wanting to learn, very curious as an individual. I suppose once I'd gone through the different coaching levels, you know, and the qualifications, one, one, one thing looking back, because I'd gone straight from being a 16-year-old schoolboy straight into being an apprentice, I didn't, I didn't get to do what, you know, I didn't get to go to university, college, etc which quite a lot of my friends outside football did. So I always felt that the academic route uh, was something that I wanted to do. So, you know, working with diff different people, whether it was Dr. Paul Ford or Dr. Robert Bjork, they really inspired me, you know, and gave me, gave me the confidence, you know, to think to myself that, you know, I, it's some, something that I can go and do. But I suppose, you know, the stimulation, you know, for me, yes, you know, it comes from, I just want to think about, you know, some core, core thoughts and philosophies for me. And it's, you know, around enhancing every young person's childhood, you know, through the power of football, soccer, you know, try to ignite every coach's passion for the game. And it goes back to, you know, that passion and stimulation and enjoyment and having fun. And then really promoting football as, as, as a real integral part of family life. You know, I think, you know, you look at modern day society today, you know, and I don't really want to get into it too much because it'd be a podcast in its own right. But you look at the effects, you know, of the last maybe 10, 12 years of smart smartphones and what they've done to society, what they're doing to young children. You know, I think young kids nowadays have never been happier uh, in their own isolation because they feel that they're connected so much to the world through their smartphone that they don't really have a need to connect in real time with other human beings. And this is where I feel that sport and football specifically can, can really join people together. You know, it can be a social connectivity and be an integral part of family life. And, you know, they're the things that get me out of bed every day and mm. thinking that I can impact that, uh, even if it's just one person at a time. You know, if it's one person at a time, one person a day, you know, then that really excites me. You know, and certainly as I've got older, I'm a family man. You know, family's become more and more important to me. Um, certainly as I've got older, because, and you'll know this, and every coach will know this, when you're an emerging coach, you spend more time with other people's children than you do your own, because you spend so much time out on the grass coaching. Mm. And I've just really managed, and and so lucky, you know, over the last, you know, yeah, I've just been so lucky to get that work-life balance back in check um, and understand how important family life is and how, and how important football can be to that, you know, to different families. 
And I just think there's so many benefits that come from it. Uh, when kids don't get outside enough anymore, getting kids outside to go and play, you know, sport and football specifically, I think is, you know, should not be understated or undervalued at all nowadays. Definitely not. And, you know, you touched there about, the, you know, the whole aspect of social media being connected. When I recently, you know, the quote was, <clears throat> you know, we're more connected now than we have ever been before. But still some of us, you know, so many of us are still so lonely. Yeah. Um, and I think you know that that, that I think that, that that is a really powerful statement because it, it, you know we on the eye and especially with young players you know the, the you know everything they do now is based on likes and you know uh, favorites and you know all the rest of that and retweets and all the rest of it and it's you know if we can just remove that for a second and just go back to why we're doing everything you know just it, just just enjoy it enjoy the process forget about the outcome for a second and yeah i think if we can find that for people just you know, not just as not for players but coaches as well and i think that those are the little bits there that will help keep everyone a bit more motivated and inspired and just i think just a happy a happier community in general definitely i, I think i think you've hit you know it, it, the sort of nail squarely on the head i think just doing it for the enjoyment of it you know, just, just getting out there and, you know, playing football for the pure enjoyment and not worrying about results, not worrying about, you know, whether something went well or not. Because I just think, again, social media is so powerful. And in some ways, like we're doing this podcast today, it's hugely positive. But I think there are some negatives that need addressing. And I think what it is doing, and again, some research that I've been looking at recently, um, is that it's turning younger people into more egocentric individuals where they do care about making a mistake, i.e. they try to avoid them at all costs. And you and I and a lot of coaches all know that making mistakes shows that you're trying and that means that you're on the pathway to learning and hopefully mastery further down the road. But this current, you know, current crop of youngsters coming through, you know, I do, I do have some genuine concerns. Yeah, definitely, and I can, I can definitely, you know, echo those words as well. So, like, you know, just on that note, you know, that's that's, you know, that's a, uh, you know, that for the future generation, that could probably, be, you know, in terms be a, a bit of a frustration, for, you know, going forward as part of their development. And I'm just curious to know, you know, with with all that experience and the observations you've been able to make over the years, you know, what, and, I, and I'm sure we've all got them. In fact, I'm certain we all have. And what would you say is one of your biggest um, or if you've got more than one, then feel free to share um, bugbears when it does come to coaching. Oh, no. No. Have you got enough time, Yas? No. I've definitely got I'm enough on, time. But I'm like, on... worth it going into, um, you know, a bugbear that you've been yeah. probably associated with back, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago and how that's changed. Obviously, the generation of coaches. Have you seen, a, a, yeah. a, you know, something that's been, been consistent yeah. regardless of the generation of coaches or has it been, uh, it might have been something that was quite prevalent a few years back and now it's something different because of the generation we're in, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think my biggest bugbear, one of them, is what I call premature professionalism, where we we now feel at the top end of the game, not mention any specific clubs because all the big clubs are doing it, where we're taking extremely young children into an environment that is sometimes not as fun and enjoyable as maybe it would be if they were out on the park playing with their friends. Now, I think some of this came from a misinterpretation from a book a few years ago. You will know the book. It's called Outliers 
by Malcolm Gladwell. He misinterpreted some of Anders Ericsson's research about the 10,000 hour rule, which is completely false. And just to give you some context, because I followed Anders, he unfortunately passed away earlier this year, very, very sadly. Um, fantastic researcher and, psych and psychologist. Um, I followed Anders quite, quite a lot. And when you look at the actual research that was used in the book, Outliers, it was about uh, female violinists who were supposedly elite. And he got asked just an off the cuff question about just one violinist, just one. And she was aged 18, I think. And somebody asked him, how many hours would you say she's done to this point if you had to say? And at first he didn't want to say because he didn't really know. So he gave an, a, a guesstimate of, I think it must be in the region of about 10,000 hours. Now that 10,000 hour rule then was put in a book which was very popular and very successful. And look, Malcolm Gladwell is a great author and writer. But in this particular context, it's, it's, it's a falsehood. So I think what clubs then have gone and done is we need to cram as many hours as we can into the youngest kids that we can to hopefully produce players. Now, I understand like you do and every other coach out there, if you want to master something, yes, you've got to put the time in. But it goes back yes, to what we said earlier about the best use of time. And I just think... Taking six, seven-year-olds into a professional club environment, maybe three, four, five times a week, traveling eight-year-olds overseas for tournaments and the pressure and the strains that come with that, sometimes away from the parents, uh, I just think is a little bit premature. And highlighting a club that I still, still feel does it the best, um, although they've been smashed a little bit recently over recent years that they don't do it the best is Manchester United is that they still take the view that it's got to be enjoyable it's got to be like a boys club type experience and I remember Nick Cox who's in charge of the academy at United saying when he was at Sheffield United saying it should never be about hours the 10,000 hours it should be about 10,000 experiences and that and that really stuck with me and I really believe that we should be giving very young children, if we're going to take them into a club, it's got to be fun. It's got to be about the game and not about putting them into a premature professional type environment. And this, this just bleeds slightly onto one of my other bugbears is about the, the, the use of the word elite. You know, when referencing young emerging players, I don't think we should ever use the word elite. You know, it's it's an attachment to a child that is incorrect because there's no such thing as an elite under eight or under 12 year old. Elite for me is the finished article. Lionel Messi is elite. You know, somebody, you know, playing in the first team at Manchester United, you know, is Mason Greenwood coming through who everyone thinks he's going to... Is he truly elite today? I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually say he is. He's an emerging talent. You know, he's exceptionally talented, but I wouldn't say he's elite. You know, so I, I think that word elite should just be referenced as potential because that's what young kids are. They've got potential. And I would imagine if you asked every coach who's been on your podcast so far, Yaz, 
you know, have you seen a player at, say, under 10, under 12, who looked amazing, who never did anything in the game? They would all say, yeah, we've seen loads of them. Yet they were called elite at that young age group. So I think we should remove that that attachment, that word elite to very young players and just call them potential players because that's what they are. Because, you you know, you look back in history, you look, and I always use Gary Neville as a, as a glowing reference on this. Gary Neville squeaked in to get his apprenticeship at under-16s. So as an under-16, he barely squeaked in to get a full-time apprenticeship and look at the career he forged for himself. So they weren't calling him elite, but I would say he became elite later on in his career. No, definitely, I, I would definitely agree with that. You know, um, there's t- people are quick to make judgments and place labels on young players, and I think it can be to their detriment more often than not. Yeah, so I guess you know, you kind of just move things forward a little bit. Then you know, you, you talked there about some of the bugbears, but you know, I'm interested though. You know, in a, in a career that spanned 30 years in coaching and still counting, what, what would you say has been one of your biggest challenges in in your journey, and how have you been able to deal with that? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose within the pro game, the sort of biggest biggest challenge has always been working around, you know, how how to effectively deal with parents of players. And I would suggest at the beginning, uh, I didn't do it very well at all uh, because I didn't really, I didn't really know, I didn't really know what it was like to be a parent who had a child who was signed at a professional football club. And and still still don't. I've got I've got five daughters who none of them play football. Um, but over over the thirty years of being around it and you know and dealing with thousands of parents, I suppose through my coaching journey, it's been how how to understand how parents think about their child being signed at a pro club, what they think of the club, what they think of the environment, what they think of the coach, and I suppose. I suppose one of the big positives was uh, under the EPPP when they started doing the um, player reviews where periodically at the different age groups, um, the lead coach with his assistant would actually, you know, write a report and that would get sent to the player and the parents and then they would actually come in for a face-to-face sort of meeting where they would go over that report and there would be an environment where the parents would be allowed to air any grievances or ask any questions and I suppose that was a huge step forward in 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 my understanding of how parents viewed what we were trying to do with their child because as the as the coach or as the phase lead our intention is to do everything that we can for each individual child in a positive way um, and and you think that you're always getting it right, where actually, until you actually speak with the parents and hear their feedback, you don't actually know. So I suppose that's been the biggest challenge, but also the biggest positive stride stride forwards. Because with the, with any sport at the highest level, there's always politics, there's always politics, and there's always questions, and you're always being you know asked the question, why is my son not starting the game? Why is he not playing that position? Etc. Etc. And what I tried to do, yes, I tried to put myself in the shoes of the parents and actually look at it from their point of view. And 
that's that's what I'm doing today, you know, certainly more than ever with first team football, because we're going to be dealing with parents in the USA compared to parents in India. Totally different cultures, different expectations. So I've got to measure how we do things out on the field and how we deal with each individual child when it comes to when we do the review with each player and their parents. And it's going to be a real exciting period of time for me learning wise and development wise for myself to listen to different cultures, different parents, you know, offer their feedback. Um, you know, and I can't I can't wait to do it. But I suppose that's been the biggest challenge and the biggest step forward, you know, certainly in the thirty near thirty years I've been in the game. You know, I'm glad to hear that you, you know you've, you've been able to use your experience and overcome that challenge, and I guess implement that going forward. And I think, that, I think that's a key part. It's always you know being able to reflect back on the experiences we had and see right where can we use that, and where can we learn, and how can we re, you know implement that going forward to kind of develop us and steer us away from you know other adversity and you know challenges that we might face in the future. You know, kind of just it kind of leading on to leading on from that. You know, I'm curious. You know. You did touch there, and it's been 30 years, quite a long time in the game, and hopefully many more years to come. If, you know, if you were given an opportunity now, I guess, to go back all them years at the start of your journey, knowing what you know now, what would be one message that you want to give Lee Waddington back then? Um, I suppose, I suppose, and and people who know me would obviously, it resonate with those, I would imagine. I suppose the one thing else would be, just to say to yourself, just relax a little and at times speak less. I've uh, been known to be able to speak, as you can tell from this particular podcast, I can speak certainly about things that I believe in and, and, and that I'm hugely passionate about. Um, but I, I would suggest I've become more relaxed as I've got older. Uh, not so much, I've never been about the result of games. You know, we used to do things at Burnley that I thought were game changing. You know, in finals, you know, of tournaments, you know, myself and all the staff, we'd go and sit on the, uh, we'd go and sit down away. You know, we could still see the game, but we'd sit in the stand and we'd tell the players that it's their final, they manage it and off they go. So it was never about results. It was more, more about my desire for players to realise their potential, you know, to maximise what they've got really. Um, because it mattered a great deal to me. So, so I suppose that might have spilled over at times. Uh, well, it definitely did. Um, so, yeah, to relax. And at times, I think master coaches are really good at, I think the All Blacks say it best, they they arm their players with all the necessary skills and knowledge and then take a massive step backwards and let the actual players get on with it themselves. Uh, and again, you know, if you go and watch a Man United Academy game, you'll see that uh, heavily being promoted. You know, they're very good at sitting down on the icebox and just letting the players play. So, speak less, relax a little bit. Definitely. You know, so, you know if you talk, talk a little bit about, you know, throughout the conversation, what you're currently doing. Um, you know, you're working with first-team football at the moment and I hope you know that, that you know, that does go in the direction you want it to and it does prosper. And, you know, just to kind of, is anything beyond that project you're currently working on that you could see yourself going into next? Um... To be honest, yeah, I haven't actually. The only, I suppose the only thing that I've looked at is maybe doing my doctorate, um, but that's a huge undertaking, you know, for someone like yourself who's obviously going down the academic uh, route as well. Um, it's maybe as an aside to first team, but I suppose, I suppose for me, it's 
next year's a big year. It's seeing how first team football performs in the different countries, what 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 works well, what what doesn't work well, because that's going to happen as well. You know, what what the bumps in the road, how how we deal with them, what we can put in place to maybe replace those bumps. And so I suppose taking a short-term view, maybe the next two to three years, it's 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 really it's really forging ahead with first team football, developing coaches. So I suppose once once things are in place, first team football wise, you know, with our different player learning centre models in different countries, my my role will be travelling out to those different countries and immersing myself in the coach development process, just to arm the coaches with the necessary tools and skill sets so they can actually, you know, achieve the best experience for the players that come into the player learning centre model, but actually so they can maximise their own potential as well. So I suppose it's working with people, helping people, and certainly, you know, as we go along, I'd like to, you know, try and help people who aren't maybe as, you know, as fortunate as us, you know, who aren't in a position that we're in. You know, I see the work, the fantastic work Marcus Rashford has done. That's really inspired me this year, working with a couple of players that are mentoring Australia in Melbourne, where we start in, um, we start in a little project called Cans from Kids, where we're looking to, you know, get get either donations of of, of money or cans of non-perishable food items, and that then is going to be distributed to a charity that we've partnered with. So I suppose try to help people in different ways, whether it's coaches, whether it's people who are less fortunate, and really just trying to be impactful in different ways. Excellent. And Lee, you know, start to wind down, then, you know, just curious now, if I gave you 60 seconds to leave the listeners with one golden nugget, we talked about the one that you might give yourself. But what would that be for the listeners if they were, you know, to take a golden nugget from you and, and be able to apply it with their journey? Yeah, I'm afraid it might be a little bit simplistic, but it's something that I truly believe in. Um, someone actually asked me a little while about what master coaching looks like. And I replied quite simply, a learning environment where everyone is playing and more importantly, smiling and having fun. I think, I think, the stimulation and enjoyment is is a little bit underrated, but when you think of it, you know, as a not, you know, as an adult, how we learn best, how we learn anything, is where you are stimulated and enjoying the experience. So, I think that should be, I think that should be the aim and focus for every coach. It should be the same for the kids too. Is that they are totally stimulated, having fun, you know, and smiling. I speak to, speak to coaches about that ideal environment and what and, and what effective coaching looks like. It is definitely about obviously the players enjoying themselves, but I think more so. And I think you can't really can't take away it's an environment where they're enjoying themselves, but they are developing, and I think that's going to be key as well. Um, just on a final note, then, Luke, you know, when you're you know finally done with your journey as a coach, hopefully not anytime soon. But what would you want your legacy to be? I suppose if we're talking legacy wise. Uh, I'd like to be remembered as someone who tried to help players and people in general. I worked really hard at it. And hopefully along the way, I helped some of, some of the players that I worked with achieve their dreams. Fantastic. And Lee, just to, you know, I want to thank you again for your time this morning. A very you know, insightful conversation around your journey and your experience. You know, I much appreciate that. And I'm sure the listeners will have plenty of things to kind of take away from that too. 
but you know, should the listeners have any further questions around some of the stuff that we've been discussed in this conversation or beyond that, is there somewhere where they can get in touch with you to kind of do that? Yeah, definitely. I've always I've always been very open to this, yeah. So if anyone wanted to get, you know, in touch with me uh directly, it's Lee L W E at firstteamfootball.com. First team is one ST. Alternatively, we are like everybody on social media. So on Instagram, it's First Team Football Group. If you're in the USA, it's on Facebook, it's First Team Soccer USA. And we also have a global Facebook page on Facebook, which is First Team Football Group. Brilliant. Well, Lee, look, thank you again for your time. I hope you have a great day and I wish you all the best in, the, you know, in all your endeavours. Thank you very much, Yaz. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.